You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. All right. Good evening, everyone. It is a pleasure to be back. Uh, and let me just say this from the outset. I have received such a, a warm welcome from everyone, and I am truly grateful. It's, it's been a blast to be with you. It's been a blast to be back in, uh, in this building again after many, many years since I was here last. Um, and, uh, and, and this has been kind of a dream come true for me in a sense of getting to be able to give back in a way that I was given to. So, so I'm, I'm grateful for, for what you have given me. I hope that I've been able to give you something uh, in return. Do you already have a question? Oh, you just can't hear me. Okay. <laughs> All right, I will be louder. Uh, the microphone was giving us feedback last time, so, I'll, so I'm, I think it worked okay. Could you hear me okay last, last week? All right, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make sure to stay loud for this one. All right, so we're in part four, right, of how to read the Gospels. Part four, as you can see, I have titled, How Were the Gospels Preserved? We talk about what the Gospels are. We talked about where they came from, about how they got here, how they were written. And now we're talking about how are they preserved? How is it that we still have the Gospels today so that we can read them now as we, as you do, right? As you have them in front of you. So to, to jump right into this, I, I have a request. I need some readers. I need somebody who could read a verse. I actually need four people. So I need some volunteers and I need them to be relatively loud. All right. So you got to be able to speak loud. So I got one right here whose hand I saw up. So you'll be number one. So go ahead and turn over to Matthew 1811. All right. Let's see here. I see uh, two in the middle. All right. So you'll be number two. All right. So go ahead and turn to Mark 1126. All right. In the very back there, I see number three. So you'll be my Luke 17. All right. And then let's do one right here, Tim. All right. So Tim, you can be John 5, 4. All right. So uh, go ahead. And you got number one there. You have this puzzled look on your face. I'm not sure what's going on. It's a, what's, what's wrong? What, what do you mean it's not there? He, he said it's not there. What, what do you have Matthew 18.10 in your Bible? Do you have Matthew 18.12 in your Bible? So just read the verse in between those two verses. No, huh? All right, something's broken with your Bible. That's okay. We'll come back to you. Uh, where, who is my number two? Our number two? All right, go ahead and read Mark 11. 26. What do you got? That's the header. Oh, okay. <laughs> you just read the heading in between Mark 11:25 and 11:27, but you didn't find an 11:26 there. No. Okay. Weird. So your Bible's broken too. All right. Uh, Luke 17. What have you got? <laughs> so you're reading a footnote. You're not reading your Bible there. Other ancient authorities add. I don't remember Jesus saying that. Right. <laughs> All right. You've got a. Le- you've got. Luke 17:36. Oh, you got 11:26. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's go on to our last one, Tim. Tim, you got John 5:4. Oh no! So all of your Bibles are broken. The the trouble is. <laughs> ah, the trouble is that you brought the wrong Bible, right? You for, you forgot to bring your King James Bible. Don't worry, I brought my King James. Actually, I brought um, the precise parallel New Testament. It's got eight different Bibles in it, but one of them is the King James. And I can read all of these to you, so I'm not sure what, what's going on. So, for instance, uh, Matthew 18:11, For the Son of Man came to save what was lost. Why doesn't your Bible have that in it? You, did the translators not like that verse in particular? They don't want Jesus to come and save what was lost? Mark 11:26, King James says, But if ye forgive... Neither will your father, if ye not for, if ye need, blah, if ye do not forgive, neither will your father, 
uh, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Why did we take that out of the Bible? That's a, that's a good line, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard teaching. You're right. There we go. It's a very good reason to leave that one out. Uh, Luke 17.36. Um, this is at the end of Jesus talking about who will disappear and who will not. Um, two shall be in the field. One shall be taken and the other left. Who are we scared of, you know, kind of uh, eschatological, you don't know that word, but, you know, of crazy uh, apocalyptic preaching. Uh, what about John 5.4? And we'll tackle this one later. Uh, An angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. And whosoever then, first after the troubling of the water, stepped in and was made whole of whatever uh, disease he had. Why did, we, why did we take that out of the Bible? What is wrong with all of your Bibles? Clearly, they are broken. No, they're not. That is today's topic. All right, so today's topic is how to make sense of those little footnotes that are sprinkled around in your Bible and really how to answer this problem, which maybe you've never noticed before because you don't kind of pay attention to the verse numbers as you're reading, that there are actually several verses missing from your Bible. And our question will be, are they really missing or what's going on here? Why does your Bible have this? Now, before we jump into that, let me just remind you of where we have been thus far and kind of get us to this point here. So we've, we've done a lot of stuff in these four classes, right? We've talked about what the Gospels are, what they're not, where they came from and so forth. So here's some things I kind of redistributed and broke it down in a different way. The Gospels, as we figured out from our first readings, they, at least as uh, Luke and John described them, right, and then as the earliest tradition that we have from Mark is described, they're based on eyewitness testimony, but they're not always written directly by eyewitnesses, right? So they're rooted in eyewitness testimony, but the original or primary author is not necessarily directly an eyewitness to Jesus. They're derived from oral tradition, so people telling stories about Jesus that eventually get written down, but they also seem to be derived from written sources. We spent a lot of time with that last time, right, thinking about what written sources did they have available to them, and And some of those written sources may well include the very Gospels that we have, right? So Matthew may have had access to the Gospel of Mark and used it as a source from which he built the rest of his Gospel from. So we talked about that. Uh, We used this way of describing the genre of a Gospel. This was by Mark Strauss, a scholar, a New Testament scholar. He said, Gospels are historical narrative, but they're motivated by theological concerns, right? So, So they're telling us history, but they're telling us history from a perspective, from a point of view, which is really true for everything, right? Anything that is ever written, essentially, is giving us a particular perspective. And so this is helping us to appreciate and admit what perspective the gospel writers are writing from. We talked about these different portraits, how they're different. They're painting a different portrait of Jesus, which means they are naturally selective and not exhaustive, right? They're picking and choosing what stories to tell about Jesus for their audience to convey the particular message and theme that they want. Each of the Gospels has its own theme, has even its own writing style, right? That the author comes as a human with their own writing style and likes certain words or likes to emphasize certain ideas. So we noticed all of that. And then one of the big things that we pointed out at the very beginning, which is where we'll kind of camp today, is this last idea that who are the Gospels written for? Whom are the Gospels written for? They're written for a believing audience, which maybe is not that big of a deal, maybe even an obvious thing, that they're written for other Christians, other believers, other disciples, to understand Jesus better, to take what they've been, you know, what they have roots in and expand on that. But that, that also raises this maybe kind of more interesting question or additionally interesting question, which is, so therefore, how did we get the Gospels that we have now? In other words... How did a text that was written in the first century make it all the way to us today in the 21st century? Who did that? And and the answer is, naturally, it's Christians, right? Christians who cared about this text 
because it was written for them. They're the ones who preserved it, and they're the ones who kept copying it over and over again. And so really, more precisely, it's Christian scribes, uh, and for a long time, Christian monks, right, whose job it was basically to, um, to copy and hand copy and copy and copy and copy and copy the text of Scripture so that other people could read it all the way until it gets to the printing press in like the 1400s or so, and we'll get to there later. But just stop and think about that for a second, right? So you have this beautifully printed Bible maybe in front of you, or maybe you have this kind of beautifully digital Bible in front of you, right, that you are using to engage with the Scriptures. But that's a relatively new phenomenon. There was a time, in fact, for most of Christian history, you could not have a personal Bible at all. Right, that most regular Christians did not have a personal Bible anyway. The Bible was housed in the church. And the one Bible that was housed in the church was not this beautifully printed thing that looked exactly the same in every church no matter where you went. It was a handwritten copy of the Scriptures. The only way that they could read the Bible is if they rewrote the entire Bible all the way through from beginning to end. And just think about how long that would take and the effort that's involved if you've ever had to do any kind of hand copying of anything, right, how long it takes. It's a long procedure. It's a really expensive procedure. It's not cheap to produce books in the ancient world. And what may have become evident to you by the fact that we have these oddities now in our text with these missing verses, so-called, right, some things happened along the transmission process. Some things happened as humans recopied the scriptures, and that's what today is about, is thinking about how humans recopy the scriptures and then what we do today to be able to get the Bible that you have in front of you, whether on printed paper or whether on your phones or your computer or wherever it is. So there's some things that you need to know, and we're just going to focus on the New Testament today, but a lot of this is true for the Old Testament as well. There's some things that you need to know about ancient Greek, for instance, to understand the recopying process. So, for instance, this is kind of what you're used to seeing, right, when you read your Bible. It's got um, very nice punctuation and sentences and there's a capital letter at the beginning of every sentence so you know when the sentence begins and there's a nice period and we even added numbers to it to make it even easier to read so we've got chapter numbers we've got verse numbers we break everything down right but in greek just in general greek not even you know talking about the bible greek right um for one they did not have punctuation in the first century so imagine a bible that has no punctuation right and take all of that out oh and by the way they didn't have spaces between their words either. Oh, and by the way, they didn't have lowercase letters and uppercase letters. They just wrote in what we'd call uppercase letters. So now imagine reading a Bible like this. In fact, you don't have to imagine it because here's what your next exercise is. Some of you are taking notes. Maybe you're sitting next to someone who's taking notes and you can borrow a piece of paper or something. You have now become a Christian scribe. And so for the next two or three minutes, your task is to recopy this biblical passage as quickly as you possibly can. Because you've got a lot to do today, right? We're running a strict scriptorium here. So go ahead and start copying. Also, you cannot erase because you have a pen, but you don't have a pencil or an eraser, right? Maybe you can cross the stuff out if you need to, if you, re you realize you made a really big mistake. But otherwise, try to get it perfect on the first try because this is the next person's Bible, all right? So go ahead and start writing. See how far you can get in a minute or two recopying the text of the Bible. Some of you are just taking pictures of it with your phone. That's cheating, guys. The scribes couldn't do that. All right? You've got you to write it out, type it out, thumb it out if you need to. All right? Yeah. Well, that's a very good point, right? Do you have this memorized already? If you do, do you do what you have memorized or do you write what's in front of you? <laughs> Young people are now doing this in text. Just, 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No punctuation. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. All right. Let's wrap this up. You did the whole thing. Whoa. All right. Now, if we had more time, what I'd have you do is actually trade with a partner and correct it and see what you missed and what you, you know, what you got right and so forth. We don't have time to do that. But any general observations, any things that you notice that you want to point out or difficulties that you had along the way or anything like that? On line four, I was like, ah, and the word was, what do you do with line four? Okay, what are you, are you saying there's a typo in the scriptures? Is that what you're saying here? How do you, but it's this, it's the holy scriptures. You can't make mistakes in the Bible. So what did you copy? Did you copy what was in front of you or did you write your own scripture? I forgot what was in front of me. Ah, okay, good. So you're a good scribe. You're a good robot scribe. So did anybody else notice this? There's, there's what some of us might call an error in the text here, right? So what does it say? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was not God? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. All right, so... So one scribe copied it exactly as he saw it, right, which would make text, what's called a textual critic, a scholar who studies the text. That would make me very happy, right? Because I'd say, okay, good job, scribe. Whatever it is that you saw, at least you wrote it down and you didn't pay attention to what it meant and what you thought it should mean theologically. Anybody else feel like they just couldn't write that down and they changed it? All right, so a few of you said, no, 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 this is a mistake, right? This is a mistake in the text. Obviously, the word was God, not the word was not God. And so I know better is what you're saying in your mind. I know better than the text. And I'm going to change the text to have it read what I know to be true, because that's what my real job is. My real job as a scribe is to make sure I convey the word of God accurately, whether or not I have copy exactly what's in front of me. Right. So you could imagine an argument in both directions. Right. And, and this is the ongoing dilemma of a Christian scribe, which is why I'm pointing out to you that how are the scriptures transmitted? They're not transmitted by paid staff, generally speaking. They're not transmitted by robots. They're transmitted by, by people like you and me who care deeply about the text and who are committed to the text and the narrative of the text and who therefore think that they know what the text already says or at least should say, which therefore sometimes introduces maybe what we could call differences in the text, right? So maybe the first scribe wasn't thinking very carefully, right? And just wasn't paying attention and, and wrote the word not in here. The next scribe comes along and has to make a decision. What do I do now? I know it shouldn't say this, but my job is to recopy. So do I recopy it or do I put it back to what I know it, it, it ought to say? Now, there are other things that we could do here and other things. Well, any, anything else that anybody noticed that they wanted to point out or question that they had from, from doing this exercise before I show you some of my things? All right, so one thing you might have noticed is at least in one case, we have a word that's kind of split up here, right? Broken up. So the beginning. All right, so that's very typical. Um, in, in Greek, you would, when you got to the end of the line, you would just stop. Now, you wouldn't stop uh, randomly. You'd always break it off at a syllable. So you, you had to know how to syllabalize your words and you had to know where to break it off. I just made that verb up. I don't think that's real. Um, and, but now you can use it. Uh, and... And so, and so the beginning, right? So they, had, so they break it off there, but it would mean that words would carry over from one line to another, which also gets rather confusing. Here's something else that you may not have gotten all the way down to, but did you notice how way down at the bottom, the kind of fourth and third to the last line here, they both end in almost the same way, into being, right? Into being, into being. Imagine what could happen. I think I highlighted that. Imagine what could happen in a situation like that. And maybe you've done this in other instances where you've been copying something over, right? You get to one line 
you finish copying that line, then your eye skips back, and where do you go? You think you just copied the second line, right? But really, you only copied the first line. And then what happens in the next version of this? A whole line disappears, right? Because you got to the first bean, and then you went to the next line. And that kind of thing happens all the time. And what have I just done here is I've kind of just introduced to you two different ways of making mistakes, right? There are ways that are intentional, you might say. So a scribe says, no way, this can't be right. And so I have to make this right because it matters, because the text matters. And I'm going to fix this theologically to be what I know is the case. Or then, then there's just kind of casual mistakes, right? People whose eyes slip and who miss a line. And so they introduce something that's wrong into the text. But now imagine that you are a textual scholar. So you just went from textual scribe to textual scholar here, all right? And you've got these two manuscripts that are in front of you now, all right? And you're looking through them carefully and you're comparing the text to each other. And what do you notice? You notice that one has this extra word not in it that the other one doesn't have. And you know, to, you know theologically, the one that doesn't have the word not makes a lot more sense to you, right? Whether you're a Christian or not, you know what Christians believe, and Christians would not say that the word was not God. That's not part of good Christian theology. So you kind of know between those two which one seems more reasonable, right? Which one seems more original, we might say. But then you keep going, and you find out that the one that you liked more, the one that didn't have the word not, it has a missing line in it, right? That it goes straight from this you know, came into being, in him was life. And actually, it makes decent sense if you read it that way. Uh, All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. That's, That's reasonable. If you didn't have the other manuscript, you wouldn't know something was missing there. But you do have another manuscript, and in your other manuscript, you've got a whole other line here. Uh, what was what has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people. And now suddenly you have this additional material. And so in the first case, maybe you decided that not that's additional. But in the second case, you can maybe reason to yourself and say, ah, but maybe what happened in this manuscript is that the scribe saw this word being skipped a line and then went on. And actually, it's this other manuscript that gives me the more original reading in this case. Does that make sense, right? So you're, you're comparing the two, and there's not one perfect manuscript here. One manuscript is giving you a good reading in one case. Another manuscript is giving you a good reading in the second case. So what do you do? When you go to reconstruct the beginning of the Gospel of John, what are you going to do? Are you going to just use one single manuscript and say whatever that one has, that's what I'm going to go with? Or are you going to start making different choices at different points using whatever manuscripts you have to kind of come up with the best um, kind of variant form, multi kind of what's called often an eclectic form, an eclectic text where you're mixing and matching different manuscripts together. And, and if you would do that, then you're um, in luck, I suppose, because that's the Bible that you have in front of you right now. Uh, That's exactly where your Bible came from, essentially. That, That there is no single New Testament, so to speak. What we really have are, in fact, thousands, in a sense, of New Testaments. If we're just talking about the Greek language, we have somewhere close to 6,000 different pieces of the New Testament. Now, these are not 6,000 complete manuscripts of the New Testament. Sometimes we count one, you know, and it's like the size of a, of a postage stamp or something like that. There's, some of these are tiny little fragments of the New Testament. But we have somewhere on the order of 6,000 or so fragments or pieces or sometimes whole collections of the New Testament. And what scholars do, in the, and the process that I'm describing to you is called textual criticism, which is a technical word for this process, what scholars do is they compare all these manuscripts together and they read how they're different and how they're the same. And then case by case, 
they figure out what is most likely to be original. What is the earliest possible text of the New Testament that we construct that gets us as close to the first century as we think that we can get? And that's where your New Testament comes from, essentially. Um, The difference, or what happens uh, often, is that there are, as I mentioned, different ways of making changes. Sometimes there are really obvious mistakes that are made, and you could say, okay, that's a mistake, that clearly wasn't intentional, and we can fix this really easily. But sometimes there are two readings that seem kind of just as plausible as each other, where the theology is slightly different or something like that, or there's this kind of extra word or extra phrase that makes Christian sense. And so then you have to decide, was this a scribe who thought that they were improving the text in some way, or was this a scribe who took something out and thought that they were improving the text in some way? And again, we do this every week a little bit, right? But maybe that makes you a little uneasy, right? Maybe it makes you a little uneasy to feel like, wait a minute, are the scribes messing with my text? Why don't they just copy exactly what's in front of them like good robots should do? But you have to appreciate these scribes love their text and they love it so much that they want it to make sense. And when it doesn't make sense to them or when it doesn't fit with what they think it ought to say, sometimes they're willing to change it, not because they think that they are uh, adding things into Scripture, but because they think that they're restoring Scripture to what it should be, to what God wanted it to be. And so it's at least maybe easier to um, excuse why all of these differences and all of these changes might show up. So now, how do scholars make this decision? Right, so you've got two different readings in front of you, two different variants, we'll call them, right? And they both look maybe equally as good. How do you decide which one is more original? So here's an exercise for you to illustrate how we might do this. All right, raise your hand if you know who Paul Harvey is. <laughs> like I got one in the back there. All right, no, more than, more than a, one, a few of you. Paul Harvey was this radio personality known for, uh, for many things, but for one thing in particular, he used to tell these great stories on the radio. And then uh, he would always start the story out and he would kind of give you little clues about who this person is and kind of give you this backstory. And you wouldn't realize that actually he's talking about someone super famous. And then at the very end, he'd reveal the, the name of the person. You realize, oh, that was some, oh, that was who it was. Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote, you know, Sherlock Holmes. Now I know his backstory. And then he would, he would always end by this. And now you know the rest of the story. That's how he would finish his thing. Well, he died not so long ago, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, and when he died, obviously lots of biographies came uh, out about him. And I was walking through the library one day and I saw these two biographies side by side with each other. And I don't know, I have a text critic's eye or something like that. And I just kind of looked at them for a second. I thought, wait a minute, there's something odd about these two pictures. And maybe you're seeing it too, right? That there, there are some uncanny similarities between these two pictures. And yet there are some differences too. And I, and I came up with a theory, all right? I came up with a theory of origins, right? So first I had to decide, is this the same picture or is this actually two different pictures? And then once I decided, in my case, that it was the same picture, I had to decide which picture is more original, which one is the real one and which one has been doctored in some way. So turn to the person next to you and for the next minute or so, have a conversation about this. Which picture do you think is original and which one do you think is doctored? Or do you think maybe they're not the same picture at all? All right. Who's got it figured out? Who knows? 
this one is definitely original. This one is definitely chain. What do you think? What do you think? All right. So how about... Okay. So you think the one on the right is the original. The one on the left is somehow doctor. Give me your reason. Or at least give me one point for your reason. Okay. You say, what fool in their right mind would ever wear an ugly tie like that? All right. Fair point. Fair point. Okay. So how about... Let's see. How about way in the back there? Yeah. I think the one on the left is the original. Ah. Aha! Aha! Okay. Now, now this is a very important point, and this is exactly the issue. We'll call, I'll get to a few more hands here. But this is, this is precisely the kind of reasoning that a text critic, that somebody who studies the different manuscripts of the Bible, really you can do this with any ancient literature, has to go through. Is it more likely that you would start with this tie and say, oh, this is a decent tie, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change that tie and alter it into this weird pattern tie over here? Is it more likely that you would do that? Or is it more likely that you'd start with this tie and say, this tie is okay, but it's, I don't know, it's a little flashy, colorful, you know, going off in different directions. Uh, it's going to distract my readers, and let's just give him a normal tie that no one will pay any attention to unless they see the original, right? Which is more likely? I didn't go ahead. I just say the left would more likely be original because if you look at the background, ah. why would you not do a smooth gradient behind if you were copying it versus yes. leaving the, yeah. the pin board? Another excellent point, right? So if you couldn't hear that, think about the background, right? Would you go from this kind of nice glow, fade, you know, that's kind of aura around him, and then add like an odd soundboard to the back unnecessarily? Or would you start here and go the other direction, right? All yeah. right, yeah, a couple more. I hate to make a political comment, but the quote, the quote and the forward are both by conservatives, and by nature, that's a more conservative. But so is the other one. The other yeah. one's Mike Huckabee. Mike Huckabee. Mike Huckabee. <laughs> yeah. Changed up since... Yeah, right? That, I would say, in this case, happens to be irrelevant, but... You don't know that. You don't know which data is important and which data is not important to, un to, to pay attention to. All right, there's other things that we could say, but I think the point has been made, so, so I'll pause here because we always run out of time um, and, and keep going. And that is this. One of the principles that you kind of have to work through when you're comparing different readings of a text is you say, okay, which reading is more likely to have led to the other reading? Right, so if you start with one reading, is it more likely that a scribe would change that reading into one of the other ones that I have? Or is it more likely that a scribe would change one of the other ones into this reading? And it sounds like at least a few of you agree that it is far more likely that someone would start with this picture, this picture that it's in color with the, you know, with the kind of awful tie and the funny background, and then change that into just a really normal thing that you're not going to you know, pay any attention to except look at his face. It's much easier to imagine it going from one to the other. And in fact, I think I can prove this because if you do a Google image search for Paul Harvey, what you'll discover is there are lots of hits of this image, this colorful one, and in fact, there's at least one other one where he is at a slightly different angle in this colorful one, and the only hit you'll ever find of this image is on the cover of this book. It doesn't appear to be a real picture at all except on this book. So if that proves it, then, then, then you've been very good text critics here, right? And, and the principle there that you just kind of intuited, that you just figured out, is, and I'll, I'll give you the kind of weird way of saying it in text critical speak, the harder reading is to be preferred. What do I mean by that? The harder reading is to be preferred. In other words, not the reading that's like really hard to read or hard to understand, but the reading that you would not imagine somebody intentionally making up. Like this is a hard reading. This is, you could say this, this is a hard tie, right? This is not an easy tie. 
This is a hard tie, and the harder tie is more likely to be original than the easy tie. In the same way that if you find two passages of Scripture, and one has a really nice kind of theological bow kind of all tied up to it, and the other one is a little complicated and involves some kind of extra theological digging, it's going to be much more likely that a scribe found this complicated thing and said, ah, that can't be right, because that's not the way God works, so that can't be right, because Jesus would never say something like that. And then shifts it over into this easier way of understanding. It's much more likely to describe would do that than find this really easy, nice text and say, oh, that's too easy. Let's make this harder. Like, let's, let's introduce some kind of theological complexity into this text and, and shift it over here. It's harder to imagine. You have to assume that scribes are reasonable, right, to make this conclusion. But it's harder to imagine going that direction than the other. And that's one of the key principles for what is called textual criticism. Or there's actually maybe even a bigger one than that, one that kind of encompasses everything, which is what we're slowly working our way towards intuitively, I think, is what you're figuring out, is that really the reading that is most original is the one that can most easily explain all of the other ones, right? So if you, st- if you imagine starting with one particular text and then moving into the ones that you also have available and existing in manuscripts, then that's most likely the one that started everything out. So let's do some examples. I know you're itching for examples. You want to say, okay, how is this, what does this mean? How is this practical? So we're going to choose one of these missing verses that we did at the very beginning, right? All your broken Bibles here. I'm going to fix them for you. So we'll do the one that Tim had, John 5. Now, in John 5, this is the story about Jesus going uh, past the pool uh, of Bethesda, I think is what it's called, and, um, and he sees this invalid there, and the invalid has been there for 38 years. Um, yeah, Bethesda is the name of the pool. And, uh, and so this is, let me read to you what the text probably sounded like to the first readers of John. All right. This is what it sounded like probably to the first reader. So it go, you know, it introduces Jesus going to this particular pool where there's a bunch of porticos. And then it says this, chapter 5, verse 3. In these porticos, these kind of column areas, lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been uh, a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, sir... I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. All right, so what's your question as a reader immediately, presumably now, after having read that? Your question is probably, why does he want to get in the pool? Like, what's up with the pool? And especially if you don't know the the reading that maybe you're used to in this passage. Because he says in verse 7, Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he says, yeah, but no one ever helps me into the pool. And so your question is, why does he want to get in the pool? What's up with the pool? Why does he think the pool is going to lead to healing in some way? And the answer is, we don't really know. The text does not answer that for us. The text does not fill that gap in until you get into the 5th century or so. And then we start getting copies of the scriptures that have this additional sentence in them that our oldest copies of the scriptures don't have. And we get this. I'll read it to you again. In these porticos lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And then it goes on, and now we know why in verse 7 he says, Yeah, but Jesus, no one ever helps me into the pool. 
right? And so this explains something. So, so your first issue, and here let me give you this kind of breakdown. Now, these, a lot of these figures won't make a lot of sense to you. They don't need to make a lot of sense to you. They're, they're abbreviations for different old manuscripts, all right? And then the second half after the semicolon are just abbreviations for current English translations. So it tells you which old manuscripts have this verse and which old manuscripts don't have this verse. The P stands for a papyrus, which is usually an older manuscript. And so these, these manuscripts here, this is papyrus 66, papyrus 75. This little symbol here is, um, uh, is Codex Sinaiticus. B is Codex Vaticanus. And these are 4th century and 3rd century manuscripts. All right, so these are in the 3rd and 4th century when Christians were reading the Gospel of John, they did not have this verse in their copy of the Gospel of John. And today, if you read modern Bibles, the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, the New International Version, the New English Bible, the New Living Translation, they don't have this verse in there either, right? So they have listened to kind of current modern scholarship and they have removed this verse from the text. But if you pick up the King James Version or the New King James Version or even the New American Standard Version, which is what's in front of you here, or if you start reading from about the 5th century on, so Codex Alexandrinus is a 5th century Greek manuscript, and then this biz stands for Byzantine, and the TR stands for Textus Receptus, which I'll explain to you in a minute. If you start reading from about the 5th century on, suddenly your copy of John will have this verse in it. So how do we explain it? How can we have two different versions of the Gospel of John? And which one is right? Well, if we use our principle, right, of kind of which reading best explains the others, which is the harder reading, then you have to ask yourself, just based on kind of purely um, uh, logical grounds, which is more likely? Is it more likely that a scribe having this verse in there would say, no, 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 nobody wants to know the explanation of why he, in verse 7, says, let me get into the pool. Let's just remove that because no one wants to read that. Or maybe you have to come up with how would this drop out by accident, right? That'd be another possibility too. Or is it more likely that it starts without that verse and then somebody along the way says, hey, there's really a key piece of information missing in this text. We need to add something in here to make sure that the readers understand why this guy wants to get in the pool. And so I imagine that for you, is in the same way for me, it, it makes more sense that way, right? It makes more sense to imagine that this verse wasn't there and that somebody added it in. Now, here's the thing. Maybe somebody did not add it exactly on purpose because what would happen, just like maybe you do today, is that ancient people, when they're reading their Bible, or sometimes actually ancient Bibles, would have what are called glosses. People would write little notes in the margins, on the sides or underneath the text or in between the lines of the text, right? So maybe you're hearing a really great sermon and you think, that was an awesome point. I got to put that in my Bible, right? I got to write that note. Or you underline something. Or maybe you just ask yourself a question. Or maybe you've been reading something in another text and you say, this really explained this passage. I'm going to add a little note for myself on this passage now to understand how to read this text. And you do something like that and then you die, unfortunately. And somebody else gets your Bible. Right? And they read this, and now they say, hey, this Bible's falling apart. I need to make a new copy of the Scriptures. Here's a great copy right in front of me. I'm going to go ahead and hand copy everything that I find in this Bible. And they get to this little marginal note on the side, and they say, oh, that's funny. This explains this verse really well. This must have gotten left out accidentally or something like that. Uh, obviously, the original scribe, and remember, in your case, you're doing it in a printed Bible, right, with a handwriting on the other side. But in their case, it would all be handwriting. It would all look about the same. And so in this case, you can imagine a scribe who picks up another Bible and it says, OK, here's the text I've got in front of me. And here's this little marginal note, which is clearly supposed to be in the text that the first scribe forgot to put in. And then he added it in later. 
So I'm just going to add it right in as I recopy my scriptures. And now suddenly we have a copy of the scriptures that has what was once just a note to explain something has been put right inside the Bible. Right. So that would be one way of explaining where this comes from. And there are other ways that we could explain it and we could go into more details. Um, This obviously explains something. If you really start to unpack stuff, what you realize is this doesn't actually sound like the Gospel of John at all. If you know a lot about the way that John writes and the vocabulary that John used and the sentence structure, this sentence really stands out in Greek. And so there are other ways to kind of figure out what is more original and what is less original. And and the point that all of this gets to uh, is, is it helps you realize where your Bible came from, how it came down to you, and then, I hope, how to read it carefully and how to understand those little notes that are down at the bottom. And so our next question is, so then how did this happen? How is it that I could trick you into reading all of these missing verses right, that aren't there? Why are there numbers that aren't in the text? And the, the short version of it is this. For the first, like, 1,400 years of Christian history, Scribes were handwriting their Bibles, right? Every day, scribes are handwriting their Bibles. Every copy of the Bible is just a handwritten copy of the text. Until suddenly you get to around the 1450s or so, and suddenly Gutenberg shows up with this great idea. He's not the first, right? Other cultures had come up with printing presses. But Gutenberg in the West comes up with this printing press. And he starts printing, and the first thing he prints is a Bible, right? He starts printing the Bible, first in Latin, And then another guy shows up named Erasmus, and he prints a Bible in Greek. And the trouble is, once you print a Bible, it's kind of set, right? It's stable, and you have to decide what text you're going to use to print that Bible. Well, Erasmus, he wants to get a Bible out quick, right? The first Greek Bible that comes out on the market is going to be the Bible that sticks. And he knows that somebody else is working on one, too. And so he gathers up kind of all the manuscripts that he's got nearby, but he's really only got like five or six of them nearby. And he publishes a printed edition of the Greek New Testament in 1516. He's the first person to ever fully get this out to the public in 1516. And unfortunately, the Bible that he prints really is not a very good Bible. It's filled with errors. And he actually admits this in his later editions. He says, yeah, I was a little hasty on that first edition. My bad, guys. I'll try to do better. Right. And and he admits this. Not only that, here's the maybe the funniest thing of all. So do you know the end of Revelation, right, where it says, let no one add or subtract to the words of this book, right? That's, a, that's kind of a big deal in Revelation. Well, when Erasmus gets to Revelation in his Greek copies, he discovers that all of the manuscripts of Revelation that he has have basically the last page missing. He has access to no Greek versions of Revelation. He's got access to Latin versions, lots of Latin versions, and he knows his Bible very well. And so what does he do? Instead of waiting around and writing to a friend and getting a good copy of a Greek text of Revelation, he translates Revelation himself from Latin into Greek and then prints his own Greek translation of Revelation. In the very section of Revelation where it says, do not add or take away from any of the words of this book. And in so doing, he adds words that up to our knowledge until this point, appear in no other Greek version, no other Greek manuscript of the Bible, of Revelation. So he, you know, because whenever you translate something, you're always going to change it. So he gets the ideas right, but he introduces new vocabulary, new sentence structure, new ways of phrasing things that exist in no known manuscript up till that point. And that's what gets printed in his official Greek copy of the scriptures in Revelation. 
And so there are things like that that happen. And unfortunately, because it is the first on the scene, and because it was relatively cheap, actually, uh, it becomes the standard printed Greek New Testament. Everybody starts using this text. Martin Luther, when he makes his big translation into German, he uses this text. Other people start reprinting this text. It becomes what we eventually call the Textus Receptus, which is just a fancy Latin way of saying the received text, the text that everybody takes, the text that everybody uses. And so this spreads all over Western Europe. In 1551, another scholar gets the bright idea of adding verse numbers to the text. Now, just imagine this situation for a moment, that up until the 1500s, when you read your Bible, there were no verse numbers, right? So if you wanted to say, turn to, I don't know, right, Mark 8:53, you couldn't say that. Right? You have to turn to that one part in Mark where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and then he reprimands them because they said, oh yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Okay, I'll find that. Yeah. Right? There was no way to refer to a single line of text until the 1500s. Now, they had some kind of rudimentary chapter numbers earlier than that, but they didn't have specific lines. Why do you think he added verse numbers to the text? What do you think his, his need to do that was? Yeah. Not every text has the same pages. Okay, so that's one idea. Not every text has the same pages, so this way you can cross-reference text. That's wrong. That's not why he did it. <laughs> what do you think? But good idea. Okay, all right. So, oh, I like the idea of catalog. That's an interest. So teaching students that you're getting on the right track. Cataloging is good. It wasn't just so he could stand in front of class and say, everybody, turn your Bibles to such and such. Because remember, this is still a time where not everybody owns a Bible, right? So it's not like students are bringing their Bibles to class or something like that. So, no? Ideas? Other ideas? The same reason you brought up earlier. Okay. Alright. Trying to refer to a specific point? No, that's not why he did it either. Alright, one last one. Yeah. No, still not there. No, you want to know why he did it? It's really boring. He was making a concordance. He was, he was doing a concordance. What's a concordance? A concordance outlines every word of the text and where it is. How are you going to do a concordance if you don't have a verse system to tell you? Where, so you say, all right, the word righteousness appears 600 times in Romans. Good luck finding them, right? Like that doesn't help very much, right? But the word righteousness appears in Romans 123, 152, 180, you know, whatever in 216, right? And so, so the reason that he creates his verse system is so that he can create a concordance alongside it. And actually, there's kind of two reasons. Also, so that he can print the Latin and the Greek next to each other and you can figure out exactly where they line up. Because most people were reading the text in Latin up until this point. They weren't reading it in Greek anyway. So this is kind of a utilitarian thing. But just think about how that changed the way that we read the Bible too, right? That now we focus often on these little verse numbers instead of looking at the big picture. Imagine a text without verse numbers. Imagine where you just have paragraphs in front of you and how you would read and understand the text. In fact, if you can do it, I would challenge you to try to do something like that. Sometimes, if you go on to like Bible Gateway, you can turn off verse numbers. You can turn off other things. Read the text just as a paragraph, like you're reading a book. And you will appreciate it differently. You won't break it into these little refrigerator magnet, you know, tweets that you can, you know, <laughs> launch at people or put onto your memory verse for the day or something like that. You see it in a, in a much bigger light. I saw a question here earlier. No, so the question is, do, how, do, how did he determine where to end certain verses? And the answer is, um, we have no idea because some of it makes no sense at all. Sometimes it's literally in the middle of a sentence. Uh, sometimes um, it's, you get this long, long paragraph of stuff, several sentences in a row. There does not seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. In fact, there's this odd tradition that he did it inter equitandum, 
while on horseback. <laughs> which, which is probably impossible, but at least explains why you'd be like, oh, I missed there. Well, oh, well, that one will work, you know, and he just kind of uh, does it. No one, no one has any clue as to how he did it. But now here's how these two things come together, right? So we've got the Textus Receptus that kind of more or less, if we're kind of thinking backwards, shows up in 1516 or so. Then in 1551, they add verse numbers to it. Then, in later than that, the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, we start discovering all of these much older manuscripts. So the, the manuscripts that Erasmus used, they were from like the 12th century. The earliest one was from the 12th century. In the 1700s, in 1800s and 1900s, we start finding manuscripts from the 9th century, the 8th century, the 4th century, the 3rd century, even a handful, maybe little fragments, from the 2nd century. Right? Um, and so the... What we discover as we start comparing these texts to each other is that our manuscripts from the 3rd and 4th century seem to be much more accurate and much better preserved. And if you're talking about like the harder reading or the reading that should explain the others, usually, not always, but usually these older manuscripts tend to preserve what we think is probably the more accurate reading, the more accurate variant. And so we can reconstruct a much better text today than we ever could back in the 1500s or 1600s. But now we've got this issue because the numbers have already been added to it, right? And so when we get to a particular verse that we realize based on our ancient manuscripts wasn't there to begin with, what do you do? Do you read number the whole chapter, right? Or do you just take out that one verse? And I think wisely we've decided we're just going to take out that one verse and not start renumbering everything because that's going to get everybody off you know, anytime you read any ancient writing, it's going to refer to a different number system. And so here's what it comes down to, right? Why are there verses missing from Bible? There aren't, actually. They just weren't there to begin with. It's not that verses are missing from your Bible. It's that somebody else added verses to your Bible. And what modern scholars have done, I think, generally speaking, pretty well, is they've taken out most of that additional material and gotten you back to a Bible that is about as close as we're maybe ever going to get to what the first Christians were reading. Now, the oldest manuscripts that we have are from like the 4th to the 3rd century, and as I said, a couple from the 2nd. We're never really going to get back to the 1st century, unless there's just a magical Dead Sea Scrolls discovery of New Testament manuscripts. We're not going to get there. But we can reconstruct with pretty good accuracy what gets us back to the 4th century or the 3rd century or so, and know more or less what was happening there. And that's pretty good. Now, again, this may... um, leave you with some pause, right? This may leave you with some um, trepidation. So let me leave some of your fears, at least. Is, is this a good thing or a bad thing? If you might have liked to imagine a biblical text where no matter what the scribe wanted to copy, they couldn't help but copy the exact thing that was right in front of them, right? Where the scribes suddenly become robots, right? And they can't possibly make mistakes because it's the word of God. And that would be neat. And I suppose if God had done that, then we would all marvel at the miracle that God had done, that any time somebody copies the Bible, it comes out perfectly every time, which happens with no other ancient text. But that would also be kind of weird, right? And that doesn't, that doesn't seem to be how God typically works, that God seems to like to use humans in all of our frailty and all of our humanity to convey his message somehow. So we, ha- so we have that, right? And so this is, on the one hand, shouldn't actually be all that surprising, to you because this is, this is how every other text is copied in the ancient world. And so it would be a little strange if the Bible also didn't have these same things that, that went along with it. 
But again, don't be too afraid because unlike most ancient books, we have a lot of manuscripts of the Bible and we have pretty decent relative, I'll say relative certainty that what we are reconstructing is about as original as any ancient text will ever be. Right. So in terms of like if you're talking about the Iliad or the Odyssey or some other kind of ancient text that came from a long time ago and has arrived to today, there is far more reliability with the gospel text or with the New Testament text than there is for any of those ancient texts in terms of how how many manuscripts we have and how close those manuscripts are to when that text was actually composed. And then I'll give you this last idea, too. And that's this. There's something really neat about this when you study ancient manuscripts, because when you pick up an ancient manuscript, and I have done this, this is actually my field of research, which maybe has become apparent to you, um, <laughs> that when you hold an ancient manuscript in your hands, when you hold a 6th century Latin Bible or a 3rd century fragment of Paul's letter to the Romans, what you're holding in your hand is somebody's real Bible, that you're holding an ancient Christian sister or ancient Christian brothers actual text that they used to worship God with and to understand Jesus with. And it's not such a big deal if one reads a little bit differently than another because this is, these are windows into a Christian community. You are seeing what early Christians cared about, the, the different ideas and questions that they had about what Jesus meant with this thing or that thing. It's part of this ongoing dialogue that we kind of participate in every time we pick up a Bible. Right? And every time you pick up a Bible, what you're doing is picking up really thousands of manuscripts, in a sense, that have been compiled together to get you closest to what we think the first Christians were reading. And so when you do that, you're participating in this great stream of Christianity, which is really neat when you let yourself stop and think about it. Um, all right, a couple last ideas here. Some things that you may have um, come across in your time. And, and I'll give you some, I'll give you, how about this? I'll give you some options. We'll move to kind of the end and then we can come back to question time and we can kind of just take it where we want it to go. Now, I focused on some smaller uh, text critical issues, little one verse one liners here. There are two really big ones that many people, when they first kind of talk about textual criticism, textual criticism, these are the things that they deal with first. There is the woman who's caught in adultery in John 7:53 through 8:11. So somebody turned there, and this isn't a trick. This is real, right? It's in your Bible. All right. So somebody turned there, and then just find what what does your Bible say? What's the textual note that your Bible kind of says before or after that? And then the other really big one is the ending of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16:9 through 20. Maybe you've seen that one too. So somebody else turn there and just tell me what is the textual note that you find there. So someone at John 7:53, what is what does your Bible say? Just just the note. So not not the text, but there's there should be some kind of little like side note or something like. Yeah, exactly. That loud. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8, verse 11. Great. Right. Is there more to it? Or is that it? Okay. A few manuscripts, including verses, Good. fully or in part, after John 7:36, Good. John 21, verse 25, Luke 21, verse 38, or Luke 24, verse 53. Yeah. All right. Isn't that interesting? So, the woman who's caught in adultery, and I'll just make this quick because we're kind of short on time, and I don't want to keep you too late today. The woman who's caught in adultery almost certainly is not in the original Gospel of John. And you just kind of kind of stop and breathe that one in for a second, right? Um, in fact, if you heard that note carefully, it shows up not only after John 7:52. It also shows up in other places 
in manuscripts of the gospel. It shows up at the end of the gospel of John. It actually shows up in some manuscripts of Luke as well. And so what does this tell you? It tells you, and, and the earliest copy of John that we have that has this in it is again about the 5th century or so. So the, the Christians who were reading John before the 5th century were not reading this passage. Does that mean that this passage didn't take place? Does that mean that Jesus never did this or said this? Not necessarily, right? And so that's a question that you kind of have to figure out for yourself. What does it mean that this is not part of the original Gospel of John? Is it in keeping with the character of Jesus? How did this passage get into the Gospel of John? One possibility, among others, is that this was an oral tradition that people kept telling about Jesus. How do you let go of a great story like this, right? Where Jesus says, the one uh, without sin shall throw the first stone. How do you let go of a story like that? And people kept telling the story and eventually somebody said, we've got to get this written down or we're going to lose this tradition. Where should we put it? Let's, let's put it here in the middle of the Gospel of John. It fits along with some other things. Now, if you read John really carefully, what you'll realize is John 7 and 8 is actually all one scene. And if you take out the woman caught in adultery, the whole scene makes a lot more sense without it stuck in the middle of it. So whoever did that didn't read John as carefully as they could have, perhaps. But maybe the person who threw it in Luke was, was thinking better. Um, and so you have to decide, so what does that mean about this passage in terms of can we preach from it? Can we teach from it? Uh, is, are these the words of Jesus? Yes or no? And I'm not going to answer those questions for you, but I'm, gonna, I'm revealing some of the difficulties that each Christian gets to wrestle with together. All right, somebody else have the, um, the textual note that comes with the end of the Gospel of Mark. Good. And you don't have to read that because that will take us in a new direction. But yes, so if you could hear that, what, what that note says is, all right, some ancient manuscripts after Mark 16.8 have what we now call Mark 16.9 through 20. But some just end at verse 8. They don't have anything after that. And some have a, a, a little extra thing that they add in the middle of verse 14 and 15. And then some actually have a whole separate ending, which if you have a really good English translation or a good Bible, you can read. Um, and, and it's a different than 9 through 20. It's a little kind of mini ending, like a one paragraph ending. And so what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that probably, if you're trying to figure out, if you're trying to ask the question, which reading explains all of the other ones. It's much harder to imagine someone coming across 9 through 20 and saying, this is a decent ending, but I'd rather it end abruptly and without a real, you know, without real closure to it. If you don't know, and probably you don't, how does Mark 16, 8 stop? It stops this way. And the women said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The end. That's a little jarring, right? But imagine that you're a scribe now who comes to that part of Mark and you've read Matthew and you've read Luke, and you've read John, and you say to yourself, that's not how the gospel ends. There must be something more to this. I can, I can add, I can fix this, right? Remember, this is a scribe who cares about the text. I can, I can complete this gospel. Clearly, my manuscript lost its last page, and I have to amend this in some way. And that probably is where all of these different endings of Mark come from. And it's hard to explain all the different endings of Mark if it didn't just end with 16.8 abruptly, as opposed to ending with something long and then somebody else thinking, this is an okay ending, but I can write a better one or I can just cut it off. That makes far less sense, right? And so again, you're stuck with this problem. All right, I've got this extra ending of Mark. It probably isn't original to the Gospel of Mark. Mark, as best as we can tell, the earliest readers of Mark, it ended at 16.8 and that's where they were left. And so what do we do with that? And I'll leave that question to you as well, although we can talk about it more.
Um, all right, let me let me wrap things up and then we will go on to questions. A question that you're probably asking yourself now is, OK, what do we do with all this? Do these do differences in our text make any kind of theological differences? Sometimes people will say no. And I think that's actually a little deceptive. I think the answer honestly is yes, but not big differences. In other words, yes, but but with but think about the scale that we're operating on. So, for instance, the woman caught in adultery, that's a passage about forgiveness. And if that's not in the Bible, that that has some theological implications, right? It doesn't mean that everything has changed about grace and forgiveness. Obviously, we have enough other examples about what grace is and what forgiveness is. But there's something there that we like and that we sometimes turn to and use that we have to decide whether we should do or not. And there are other passages like that. The end of the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That actually is not in some of the earliest manuscripts. There's some theological implications there about how we say the Lord's Prayer. Not that we often say the Lord's Prayer. Um, but if you were in a, in a church that said that frequently, right, you'd have to decide which part of it do we say, which part do we not say. So there are ways in which these passages can make some differences. But then if we're asking big picture, if we're saying, is the nature of Christianity fundamentally changed in some way? because of these different verses or these different things that are these variants in the manuscripts, I would say the answer is definitively no, right? And I would say even probably the most skeptical of scholars would say, no, not really, right? You, in other words, if you read the King James Bible, you can still become a Christian, right? You, you can still be a believer and you will get the message of Jesus Christ. You don't need something as exacting as what we've created. But it's still better to have an earlier and, you know, and, and more original text, but ultimately, that doesn't change the big picture of things. So that hopefully will give you some comfort. And then let me um, wrap up with these kind of big ideas. What, this, is a, this is a kind of big picture for all four classes. This is where we've been going kind of this whole time. If I asked you, what do we have of Jesus's? When we read these Gospels, what are we getting access to with Jesus? I'm going to give you two kind of complicated terms here. Do we have Jesus's ipsissima verba? Do we have his obsessive of error? What does that even mean? Right? It's a Latin phrase. Uh, anybody, any, any guesses or any people who study Latin? Good. I heard words there, right? Exact words. Exact words. Very good. Do we have his very words? Do we have the obsessive verba of Jesus? And, and my answer to that question would be, not exactly, right? Because what is Jesus, what language is he speaking? We figured this out already. Aramaic. Probably Aramaic or maybe Hebrew, right? But not Greek. And the, and the Gospels are written in Greek. And even if we had the Gospels in Aramaic, but we had them in different, you know, kind of portraits, as we're talking about, in different chronologies with different emphases and themes, would we still then have the exact words of Jesus, the very words of Jesus? And the answer would probably be also not, not exactly. So then what do we have? And what I would suggest to you that we have instead is we have the Ipsissima Vox instead. Very good, right? We have the very voice of Jesus. And so what I would suggest to you, when you pick up the Gospels and you read them, and you, and you begin to encounter Jesus, what you are encountering is not necessarily, maybe in certain instances, right, but is not necessarily the exact words and deeds of Jesus as he did them in the order that he did them with the wording that he said them. You're not necessarily encountering that every time. But what are you encountering? You are encountering the voice of Jesus. 
You are encountering the character of Jesus. You are encountering the types of things that Jesus did and said from place to place. You are encountering the earliest memories of Jesus' closest followers and what they thought was important to carry on from generation to generation so that all future followers of Jesus would know something about who Jesus really was at his core. That's what you are encountering when you pick up the Gospels and you read them. And so then when we get to the end of the Gospel of John, and John explains to us what his Gospel is all about, which I think we could kind of extrapolate to all Gospels, there's something funny that happens here which you couldn't appreciate until we did this class. And that is there's a very small textual variant in one of the verbs. In one of the verbs, there's a Greek letter called sigma, which is the equivalent of S for us. And in this Greek verb, if you add the sigma or take it away, it kind of changes the tense or what's called the aspect sometimes of the verb. And so there's two ways to read the end of the Gospel of John. John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, which we already figured out, right? The Gospels are selective. They're not exhaustive. But why are these written down? Well, these are written so that you may, and I'll give you two versions of this. One version, some manuscripts have it this way, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So some early Christians would read this when they would read the Gospel of John, that the Gospel of John brings you into the faith. But other early Christians, depending on that verb, would read it slightly differently. These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Early Christian scribes, as we already pointed out at the beginning, were believers, and they cared about what the text said, and so they're kind of, they're interacting with the text even now as they recopy it, right? And they're thinking, what is the purpose of John? Is the purpose of John so that I can come into faith, or is the purpose of John so that I can stay in the faith, so that I remain in the faith? And I think the answer is both, right? The answer is that they're both right. John, the, all the Gospels bring us into faith and keep us there too. And, and that therefore, when we are reading these Gospels, we have to remember that they are pointing to Jesus, but they are not Jesus. And that sometimes we can almost worship the text and forget that the text is there as a conduit to point us to God. And that what we should really be doing is worshiping the God who is behind the text and not worshiping the text itself. So if I can leave you with anything, let me, let me leave you with that point. All right. I, this was like Lord of the Rings. I told you I was ending like six times, and then we finally ended. But here we are. We have come to the end. And uh, so if you need to pick up kids or do anything, you can do that. If we want to do a little time, what, I don't know. Do we have time for questions? Do we need to wrap it up? All right. So we'll do, let's do a little time for questions, maybe five or ten minutes of questions. We can go into text criticism. We can do stuff from previous classes, whatever you want to do. And then uh, and I'll stick around afterwards, too. Yeah. So, so the question, if you couldn't hear it, is how do we reconcile right, what Paul says in 2 Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed? with what I've just presented to you, which is that we're maybe not getting the exact words of Jesus, we're getting the voice of Jesus. And what I would say to you, and I said this, I think, maybe on our first day, is sometimes for me a helpful analogy is to think of Scripture in very much the same way that early Christians often thought about Jesus. It's to say, well, Jesus is fully divine on the one hand and fully human on the other hand, right? So there he's 100% God, he's also 100% human man. And somehow he mixes those two things together perfectly. And although there are ways that that analogy falls short, 
I think it is also helpful to think of Scripture that way in some ways too. That Scripture is written by people, for people, couched in a, in a culture, in a community, in a world, right? It's written in the first century with first century metaphors and first century language and first century ideas if we're talking about the New Testament, right? And you go to the Old Testament, it's even more complicated than that. And yet, it is something that is enlivened by God. It is something that God breathes into. And that the Christian community believes that when they encounter these scriptures, they are encountering the voice of God at the same time that they are encountering these human voices. And, and that's a matter of faith, I would say, right? There's not something that one can prove or disprove. It's a matter of choosing to believe that somehow these scriptures are also part of God's speaking to us in addition to their being a product of their own time and their own people. I don't know if, I, if I'm accomplishing or, or hitting what you're describing. Somebody likes it, though, so that's good. <laughs> Yeah, I can, I can remember as a young Christian, uh, I used to say, right, or someone, you know, taught me to say, maybe, uh, right, well, someone, if you're, you know, if you invite someone to church, say, well, I don't believe the Bible, it's filled with contradictions, right, and then my retort, well, oh, really, show me one, right, name one contradiction, and luckily, no, no one ever took me up on that, <laughs> but man, if old me could meet new me now, right, I'd have a list, uh, a long list, all right, explain this one, explain this one, explain this one, but the good news is that I've arrived at a point in my Christianity where, where I realized those, they're not contradictions in the way that we define them, in this, or they are in the way that we define them, but they wouldn't be in the way that ancient people would define them. In other words, that you might be able to find what we would call contradictions, but the ancient people didn't write the way that we write. And so when something, I think what you're getting, you know, when, when it says Jesus went this way in this gospel, but he went the other way in the other gospel, he did it with two people here, but three people over here. Those things didn't matter to them the way they mattered to us. And they're, and they're not contradictions. And we don't, have to def- we don't even have to defend that. We can just say, that's just not the way the text was written. And so you don't, you don't have to worry about that in the way that maybe... Okay, yeah, that's great. Um, let's see. Uh, if, you, I, if you wanted to pursue specifically this idea of the four portraits of Jesus and thinking through how each gospel paints a different picture of Jesus. Uh, Mark Strauss was the name that I mentioned who gave us that definition. And he has a, he has a textbook, right? A textbook that a lot of New Testament gospels classes will use called um, Four Portraits, One Jesus. So there you go. I, I swear that I had that idea before I saw his textbook. I didn't steal it straight from him. Um, but so that would be a really easy place to start, right? So Four Portraits, One Jesus by Mark Strauss. And, and then if you use that textbook, at the end of every chapter, there's all sorts of uh, what are called bibliographies, lists of other books that you could use to then go on and explore further ideas uh, in more depth. So I'd say maybe start there. And if you have kind of more specific questions, come talk to me. I'll give you more recommendations of other, of other books. Or <laughs> enroll at Pepperdine. Come get an undergraduate degree. See, my, my dean would thank you, right? or a master's degree, and you can learn all of this and so much more. Or do that. Yes, a good point. All right. Thank you all so much. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.